Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is the games writer Rihanna Pratchett. Rihanna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just tell us briefly who you are and what you do. Well, as you said, I'm Rihanna Pratchett and I'm a, a writer. Um, I, I've kind of made a lot of my um, career in in video games. Uh, I originally started as a video game journalist working for the late, great PC Zone magazine. And after a few years of, of doing that, I moved into the development side of video games and started working on script and narrative, developing stories and characters for games. And since then, I've worked on a number of titles, uh, such as Heavenly Sword, Mirror's Edge, um, the entire uh, Overlord series and also Tomb Raider um, and Rise of Tomb Raider, which was the the reboot of the franchise which started in 2013 and a whole host of other games in between, Bioshock Infinite, um, Risen, uh, Viking Battle for Asgard, um, all all sorts of uh, games under my belt. Um, In the last sort of five or six years, I've started doing more work in film and TV, um, usually book to screen uh, adaptations. And I've, I've done four screenplays of books to to screen adaptations. I've also done some development work in TV. Um, I've written comics for um, DC Wildstorm and for uh, Dynamite and for Dark Horse. And I've even done a a couple of short stories and some non-fiction stuff as well. So I'm pretty much covering everything. Of course, I I always forget that you've done some comics as well. You started off, I mean, was your first comics the Tomb Raider spin-offs? Um, so it was actually a prequel. Well, it actually wasn't Tomb Raider to start with. It was, um, Mirror's Edge. So it was the Mirror's Edge comics with, uh, DC, DC Wildstorm. Um, and they were kind of prequel comics to, to the, uh, the first game. So it was really about kind of setting up, um, the world and the characters and how, how the runners came to be, how the city came to be and sort of Faith's background and relationship with her family. Yeah, of course. So it's similar to what I did with Dead Space, of course. I always, again, I, yeah, I forget about yeah. that. Yeah. So go back to, you started as a journalist uh, and we, mm-hmm. we will go back further than this, but for now, let's just sort of focus on sort of how you move from one to the other. So as you say, you were right for Pieces Own and you did that for some years, as I recall. How did you go from that into games? Well, actually it wasn't, uh, PCs wasn't my first um, journalistic writing. I actually started writing game reviews for a women's magazine called Minx, which was aimed at 18 to 24-year-old women. Oh, my goodness. And it was a little bit rock and roll. Like, it was a slightly more edgy than the other women's magazines around at the time. And um, I'd written a couple of bits for them. I think I'd uh, reviewed a couple of graphic novels. I think I'd written something about um, women and gaming. And the uh, editor knew that I was a big gamer, and they decided to to cover games, and they got me to do it. Um, and I, I got, like, about three times 50-word sections to review games, but it meant I got onto the press list of Games PRs, um, and they would send me code, and, you know, that 
that kind of helped a lot getting a, a foot in the door of the industry. And, and interestingly, the uh, lady who actually gave me my first professional writing work, Kate Spicer, is still a, a lifestyle journalist. And I've done several interviews with her where she's been interviewing me about games for the pieces that she's <laughs> been doing. So it's all it's all cyclical. Excellent. I remember, Minx, I actually applied for a job there as the art director back in... Oh, wow. Yeah, would have been about 2001 or something, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Kate, Kate Spicer was the reviews editor there. And I, I think I caught their attention by sort of writing an opinion column, which was, may have been about women in gaming and kind of mocking it up into the layout um, of Minx. So it looked like it had come from the magazine. Uh, and yeah, that thankfully my, my degree in journalism and layout skills came in handy then. <laughs> so is that what you did uh, at what university or college yeah i went to what is now called um uh lcc the london college of communication um which were is part of um uh the london college of arts and um originally back then it was called the london college of printing and distributive trades uh and it it was uh, one of a collection of colleges. It was then, then called the um, London Institute. Uh, it comprised of um, Chelsea College of Art, where where my mother went, um, London School of Fashion, Central St Martins, and it was a whole a kind of mishmash of colleges that covered art, fashion, photography, and media stuff. And at the time, the LCP journalism course was one of the most respected in the country. And it was run by journalists that worked on high-profile newspapers and that kind of thing. And it was um, a very quite vocational course. There was a lot of teaching you to do stuff that would be handy in the real world, uh, shorthand, layout, sub-editing. And there was also a quite an academic component um, uh, called history, politics, and ideas, where you know we did the same kind of reading that you might do in an English course or a history course or philosophy course. So it sort of touched upon everything really. And so, yeah, it, I'm someone that likes exploring multiple things, not necessarily in depth, at the same time. So I'm always doing, you know, I'm always like what, like watching a movie in the background or reading an article and doing some writing and doing this, that, there, and the other. And I think journalism. And that kind of course prepared me well for it because it, it gave me a little bit of everything. Shorthand. My goodness. I, I never learned shorthand. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I wish I, I kind of wish I kept it up, but I, you know, I could do it fairly decently at the time. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, it was like fun to do. And it meant that I came out of university knowing how to do something in the real world, which I think was quite useful. And, you know, we used to have, um, pitches uh pitch lessons where we would pitch to our tutors if they were the editor and then he would choose something for us to write about and then we go, go off and write it during the day get our quotes together and file it by, by the end of the day oh wow and that might include going to court and doing court reporting which i would do now and again and then writing up a news story on that so it was really a really really interesting course and i thoroughly recommend it if anyone's interested in journalism yeah, that sounds like a really good practical vocational way to teach that sort of. Yeah, absolutely. I think it made me massive. It made me massively overqualified for games <laughs> journalist. But there we go. Yeah, I, I never did anything like that. But I, um, 
did some quite extensive work experience at my local newspaper. Oh yeah, I think I I did a little bit of that as well. Yeah, and so it was. I mean, obviously, it was you know sort of cat stuck up tree and all that sort of thing. But <laughs> nevertheless, as a teenager, seeing that working environment for real, you know, seeing people actually filing copy, and this was in the days of manual mm. typewriters and stuff as well, and an actual copy spike on the editor's desk, that sort of thing, uh, really was an eye opener. And newsrooms had a smell back then, I think. You know, you could still smell print and kind of sweat and panic. Um, And, yeah, that was nice. I I did some work on um, uh, Western Daily Press. I did some – I think I was 14 and did some work experience on the Western Daily Press. Nice. Where my my dad used to work uh, a long time ago. So I think they they, – there's possibly some – strings pulled then um but yeah it was it was it was good fun and uh, my dad who also started as a journalist said you could see the scaly hands of journalism reaching out for me <laughs> okay so uh so from minx to pc zone or into games journalism at any rate yeah i think i, I worked a little bit for pc gear beforehand that was the sort of younger sister magazine of pc zone so um, I met the reviews editor of PC Gear, Daniel Emery, who, who went on to do a lot of work at the BBC. Um, he, PC Gear had sort of just started when I met him, and it was at a, funnily enough, launch of Tomb Raider 3 at the Natural History Museum. And I happened to be on Daniel's table, and we got kind of got talking about things, and he, he passed um, a few uh, little bits of work my way. And obviously back then, female... Uh, game reviewers were few and far between. Um, and I, I was a, a big PC enthusiast and, and still am. Um, and so I, I did have the kind of the knowledge and, and skills to to be able to, to to do it. And I had my the genres I liked and things like that. Um, and so I got a little bit of work um, on PC gear. And then Dan recommended me for a position at PC Zone, which was the editorial assistant role, um, which I... Um, went along and did an interview and ranted about the, the poor score that they'd given uh, Diablo to, um, <laughs> and until they, yeah, until they, I think they felt kind of forced into giving me a job just to shut me up, I think. Excellent. Arguing with the editor, always a good tactic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were the actual, you know, mechanics, as it were, of you moving from there to, I mean, you say that you got to know games PRs, and stuff so you got to know people on the inside of the industry but how did that then lead to you writing your first game well certainly my my uh, time at zone helped a lot so during that time i was um office based and i would go around the world um meeting developers seeing how games were put together seeing how the sausage was made um and kind of interviewing them about the work and the games industry being what it is games pr usually starts quite early on so you do get almost unprecedented access to games developers and what goes on behind the scenes in a way that you don't quite as much with something like movies um so you get to see the game when it when it's sort of in its um early stages you get to follow it through development you get to follow the stories of developers um and you know you get preview code and review code and um so there's a lot of different ins to the game development process um and what was interesting was i was never introduced to a game writer during that that whole time so i probably spent about two years just over two years working full-time at pc zone no one ever 
um, introduced me to a writer. Um, I may have met a designer or two that did a bit of writing, but no one sat me down. I was going to say, how many games writers were there at that time? Not many. Not yeah. not really any that were specific to games um, and, and did that sort of full time. I think, you know, as you know, back then it was usually the um, – the designer who fancied the go, the producer who wrote short stories in this, in their spare time, it was whoever had the time and inclination to do it was allowed to do it. Um, and then there wasn't really much talk about narrative in games. There wasn't that much talk about the story and characters. Obviously, it was happening and it was there. It just was, wasn't really the focus. No, it's, uh, I, have, I had uh, James Swallow on here not so long ago and yeah talking about exactly the same kind of you know back in our day and obviously you're of that same generation where we all came up in an industry that didn't actually care that much about the story in games and i think we're all really lucky enough to have been involved almost at the ground level of games taking story and narrative seriously oh yeah Um, absolutely yeah which has been great for our careers obviously (laughs) Yeah, and I, I mean, I grew up with James in the industry, so he used to do games journalism stuff, uh, albeit freelance, when I was doing PC Zone um, uh, kind of press events and stuff like that. So I've known known uh, Jim for a long time, um, and we, you know, we've been on lots of panels together. And originally, you know, the the writer meetups that that we have now and again. Um, they they came out of meetups that myself, Jim, and Andy Walsh had. So there were about that's when there were about three of us doing game writing in the UK, and now that's that's sort of expanded until I don't know how many at the last meeting, maybe I don't know seventy between fifty to seventy. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I remember when it was three. Yeah. <laughs> The last London Guild, uh, the last Writers Guild meeting in London. Yeah, I think there were over 60 people there, which, as you say, back in 2006, 2007, would have been unimaginable. Yeah, it's like saying, I remember when all this was fields. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the writing equivalent of that. So, yeah, it used to be the the three of us having a drink, swapping war stories. Um, And, you know, there weren't many game writers in the UK besides us at that time and then sort of slowly uh we built that up um and we kind of reached out to more people that were starting to get into it and that's just sort of grown and grown so it's been as you said it's been great to be on the crest of that wave and and see the industry start to take narrative more seriously players developers and publishers yeah absolutely true so uh, once again we've skipped over the actual specifics (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. Of how you started. So how did you get that first gig? Right. Um, So I'd just gone freelance from Zone in about uh, 2002, and I got a call from uh, a PR who was in the gardeners, uh, Sven Vinke from uh, Lamin Studios, and they were trying to think of someone that could help them with the dialogue polishing of their latest game, which was called Beyond Divinity. Um, and they knew that when I was at Zone, I'd been a big fan of their, their previous game, Divine Divinity, which is a terrible name, and they admit it, but that's, that's <laughs> it's gone on to, to basically be Original Sin, uh, Divinity Original Sin, and that's all, you know, the studio's done really, really well. Um, and so... A div- divine divinity and beyond divinity were, were part of that same world and did a certain amount of establishing the law of that world and it, 
you know, it just seemed like a fun thing to get involved in. Um, journalism can feel like a relentless cycle of pitching and rejections. And then even if you do get, get a gig, it, it takes so much of your time to do when it comes to game reviewing. And the, um, the pay is, was never that good in the first place. And it's got steadily worse over the years. So it knew you did it more for the love than, than the pay. And so you, you had to find other ways of actually paying the bills. And it just seemed like a, an interesting thing to do. I, I, I really liked Larian Studios. I liked the franchise. And so I just said, okay, then, yeah, let's give it a go. And I, I helped polish up the script. I did a little bit of original uh, content creation. I wrote a not particularly good novella to go with the, <laughs> the game. And... Um, yeah, and it sort of started from there. So when I when I finished, I kind of thought, I this is this is kind of interesting. I've seemed to have stumbled upon something here, and and that really is the trajectory of my career is sort of stumbling from from one thing to the to to the next, having no real plan or map, just kind of you know trying things and seeing what happens. Um, and so I started to contact developers that. Uh, uh, I, I had maybe had a little bit of a relationship in the past in terms of I'd, I'd met them in prayer strips or I particularly liked their games. And because I was quite eclectic in my tastes, I didn't, I wasn't hitting up like the big boys like uh, Bungie or Valve or, or, or whoever. I was kind of hitting up small indie developers like um, uh, Firefly Studios, for example, in London. And I was a big fan of their Stronghold games, uh, castle building games. Um, and I, I sort of lit, uh, you know, I literally sort of went up to them and said, hi, I'm doing narrative now. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you need any help with that? And, um, I got work on, on Stronghold Legends by doing that. Um, I did a little bit of freelance work for International Hobo, Chris Bateman's, um, company who I, I met Chris un, unknown to me had done work, uh, on Discord Noir, but I knew him or came to know him through Ghostmaster, uh, which was done by an uh, Oxford developer at the time called Sick Puppies. And I really loved Ghostmaster and International Hobo had, had done the um, a lot of design and narrative work on that. And I think I ended up joining their, their website. Um, and I think Chris saw my name pop up and, and sent me an email and I sort of... Um, kind of established a connection there and they gave me a little bit of writing work I think on a Spongebob game and a Pac-Man game just writing level dialogue and barks and things like that and then I got Stronghold Legends and then I, I got Heavenly Sword which is probably where my career sort of kicked up a few notches and it was more around that time I started leaving journalism altogether and and focusing more on on just pure game writing so wow so up until that point you'd still been doing journalism on the side a little bit yeah here and there um and i i sort of kind of diversified out from from doing pc stuff and i did do console stuff as well and i wrote a lot for the guardian i used to have a column uh, on the guardian website um and you know many many years ago i did bits of work for the sunday times for yahoo um all, all over the place really and it was yeah it's around about heavenly sword that i started sort of just i i was getting enough work enough momentum in in um writing for games i wasn't having to do um too much writing about games so 
there's one really well, there's lots of interesting things you said there, but there's one that I want to sort of focus on. Uh, and that's when you said about, you know, you've kind of just tried things and and see what happens. And I mean, I could say the same thing about my career in games, and I think a lot of us could actually. But I think that's a really important thing to emphasize, especially to anyone listening to this who, not just for games, but really in any creative career, who just wants to do interesting things. Loads of points in my career, certainly in all kinds of media have, you know, come about because somebody said, Hey, do you fancy doing this? And I was like, yeah, actually that sounds interesting. Why not? And then, you know, it's turned out to be something significant. Not always. Sometimes it's insignificant, but you've got to have that, I think, curiosity to go, actually, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, and even though it might be something you've never done before and just sort of dive in with, both feet mm. and be open to those opportunities. Oh yeah, absolutely. You never know where where an opportunity is going to come from. I, I made a, a connection um, with uh, some some friends in LA uh, through another developer. I think we we went out, um, sh- you know, shooting guns at a gun range and then ate a lot of steak together. And um, <laughs> then ten years later, through that initial interaction the connection i got work on bioshock infinite um so you you kind of never know where where things are going to come from and i i do keep looking for those kind of unusual avenues and those paths less traveled yeah i think that also emphasizes the importance of just not being a jerk as well you know it doesn't matter who you're with or whether you're working with somebody or not or you know just kind of be a good pleasant person and then, yeah, as you say, in 10 years' time, they might go, hey, what about such and such? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, we talk about networking, but when it works best, it's just about making friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 like, and, and, you know, being an in, uh, interested, you know, a person who's interested in the world and in people and, and is not just out, out for themselves. And, and you know, it's, it's, they're not purely network, network, network. And we know those people. We've met those people, even in the games industry, who you're trying to have a conversation with and they're continually looking either side of you to see if there's someone more important <laughs> yes. in the room. Um, yeah, that it happens a lot in LA, but it, it's, it's bled out elsewhere. And if, you know, if you just, you know, connect with people, you know, we're, we all love games. And so, you know, and we're all people with interesting stories to tell. And if you kind of like focus on that rather than ruthlessly pursuing the work, I, I think you tend to have a bit more success. No, I agree. And I think that's, again, a very important point is that everybody in games loves games. You know, pretty much everybody I know in games, I've said this before, could make more money using those same skills to do other things but we all work in games because we love it. And honestly, that I, yeah. I find that's the same, that the same is true in most creative industries of the creators, perhaps not of the mm. businessmen, you know, sitting at the top or whatever, but the people in the trenches actually doing the creative work. You, if you don't love it, you can't make a career of it because it is such hard work for so relatively little pay, as I say, yeah. compared to how else you could be using those skills that it will grind you down unless you have a real love for it. Yeah, and it, it's that love that sustains you through through the difficult times as well. I mean, having said that, I have like par- at least partly moved into doing uh, working in other fields as well. Uh, I, but I don't think I'll ever completely leave games um, entirely. And you can have more than one love. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we all love watching movies and stuff as well. So <laughs> yeah. again, as long as you enjoy that and have a love for making those, then you, yes, you can have a good time writing screenplays, even though that's in some ways even harder work than games. I, I, I don't know. I, like, I, I guess I've only got through the development side of things, so I haven't had anything made yet. But I found that working in games has made me more robust for everything else. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I, I, I didn't think that at the time, um, but the because it's a relatively young industry in compared to other ones, because narrative is still kind of, we're still in that teething stage where everyone's trying to work out how to do it properly, how, how to um, get the right people involved, how to kind of educate their staff, um, how, how to make what was sort of, previously square pegs fit into round holes um and you know as jim always says there are no maps for these territories so everyone is trying to map it out now as best they can um it can be kind of really hard you can be dealing with a lot of people that don't know about narrative uh, don't care about narrative or or think they know based on the fact that they've read some books or watched some movies um which you know as you know we, we get a lot of in games yeah. <laughs> so moving into other disciplines where the people i'm working with were usually well versed in story and even if the you know they were could be difficult or you know they they didn't give great feedback or we had different tastes there was usually a level of narrative literacy that was higher than the people that you're working with in the games industry and that's not being mean it's just the narrative literacy of the games industry has never had to be that high before um so yeah i found it it it, had kind of toughened me for for kind of everything else so i'm you know i'm just happy that people are giving me um specific knowledgeable feedback sometimes (laughs) yeah i I know what you mean actually i've i'm sure that sometimes i scare my uh, literary agent and my novel editors and stuff uh with should we say forthrightness because i'm so used to arguing my corner in games Mm. and being and taking (laughs) feedback and receiving feedback but also sort of being robust about how i discuss those notes that i think it sometimes does scare people <laughs> yeah and you, you you kind of learn to be quite flexible in games um because you never know the kind of thing that's going to be thrown in you never know what you're going to be uh, told to cut or adjust and it's you know you are you know to be a games writer you have to be flexible to meet the challenges of development and and the way that the gameplay and level design is created and how narrative feeds into that you yeah you end up having to do lots of things on the fly and um you know more often than not it can be like that scene in wallace and gromit where gromit's on the front of the train laying tracks in front of the train as it's going (laughs) along and that is a lot like games writing feels sometimes i think games development in general feels uh, like that yeah as you say laying tracks yeah (laughs) off the front of the train so um you you say you went to university to do journalism what have you so you always wanted to be some kind of a writer um what i'm interested in the reason i mentioned that is because you grew up obviously with your father's a writer and i assume surrounded by friends of his who were writers so did you i mean how did you come to decide oh i want to do that as well I, I don't think there was ever a ding moment. Uh, I think I went through a period of not quite knowing what I wanted to do. Um, and 
for a long time, I wanted to be some kind of mermaid <laughs> rather than some <laughs> kind of writer. I knew I was interested in acting, in law, and I just didn't know what to do. I, I like I had sort of light talents in a few areas, but not like I didn't feel I had any standout driving talents. Um, but you know, I always enjoyed writing. I always enjoyed English, um, and. I, th- I sometimes I think people can kind of romanticize coming from a writer family. Like you're, you're suddenly sort of saturated in words and, and, you know, literary salons and things like that. When it's, <laughs> it's usually, it's just what your dad does. You don't really pay much attention because it's your dad, uh, you know, it's your dad's stuff. And it, it took me a while before I really realized what my father was doing you know I knew he was away a lot I knew that there was a lot of time I wasn't allowed to disturb him um and it I'm there was probably I I guess the moment that equal rights was serialized on women's hour and maybe I was about nine or ten at the time and I that impressed me because my mum used to listen to women's hour and and uh, like religiously and so I thought oh if my dad's on that <laughs> that you know that, that must be special and so I remember recording diligently equal rights on um on women's hour and, and listening to that a lot and that was it that was the only time I sort of or that's the first time that I it started to sink in what my dad did and then I then I think I started reading the books but up until then it was like is this is what dad does it makes him away a lot. Um, and, and like, and there was almost a reluctance to not know what he was doing. A, a sort of like slightly stubborn childhood anger that, you know, it was what was just taking him away from me. Right. Um, and so I, I don't think I was kind of that interested. And to, to a degree, I, I think I've, I kept this world at a distance, although I read quite a number of the books. Um, for for a while because i wanted to you know make make my own path whatever that was of course um so i i i knew i was like you know decent at writing and i knew that there were various things i could do with it but i i think i fervently did not want to go and be a novelist um because it felt like you know dad had that already um sewn up and you know i was starting to like realize that people were interested in my dad and um you know that there was a, a little there was a bit of a shadow there and you know I you know at some point sort of worried about you know are people being friends with me just because of my dad and things like that that I think every person with a, a famous mm. you know mum dad or sibling goes through at some point well I was going to say uh that if you had you would have had to sort of go the Joe Hill or Nick Harkaway route wouldn't you really if you if you really wanted to sort of make it as you say on your own without people just going oh I'll read that because yeah. of who she is yeah and I you know I really um, I I didn't f- feel like changing my name because I I had um, I had a career in games journalism and so my name had been associated mm. with a different kind of writing and I think that's really what I was looking for was a different was writing but a different different kind somewhere where I could kind of make make my own mark and, and travel my own roads. One thing that you did have, I mean, I can understand what you're saying about, yeah, it, it just, it's just what your dad does. And, you know, if anything, you're a bit annoyed that it takes him out of the house and you can't go and play with him at all hours of the day, whenever you want to as a, mm-hmm. as a child. But at the same time, presumably it gave you some 
idea, even at a subconscious level, of the mundanity of being a writer. You know, yes, he was a famous man and he went all over the world uh, promoting his books and what have you, but he also spent hours in his study typing at his computer. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess that's sort of saturated in an unconscious level that um, I, I definitely saw the unglamorous side of writing as well as the glamorous side of writing. And I, I did spend a long time, probably from the age of about eight to 16, what I call bobbling, which is my mother and I would bobble along behind my dad as he, he kind of went to sci-fi conventions and things like that. And we'd all be kind of bobbling along in the background, <laughs> um, like waiting for him to finish signings or panels or things like that. Um, and so I, th- I finished my kind of bobbling days at about 16 and I didn't really go to any sci-fi or fantasy conventions after that. And I, I'd had been to to quite a lot and, and some world cons and some Elador Easter cons and things like that. Um but I think by that point I was like, okay, like I've got to I've got to find out who I am now rather than I I don't want to be the person standing behind the interesting person. Yeah. <laughs> and I you know I want to find a way to be at, at, out front. Um and so that's kind of my the vague momentum that I had going forward. All right. Well then let's talk about the course of your career then, because as you say, you, you've been in games certainly for a long, long time, longer than most game writers. Uh, you've seen the industry change in that time an enormous amount as all of us. I mean, I came into the industry a bit after yourself, James and Andy, but nevertheless, you know, even in the, what is it? 14 years or something that I've been in it, I've seen it change enormously. How have you changed in terms of your work, how have your work habits and your sort of attitude towards and your approach to writing games changed in that time? I don't understand how I managed to get so much done. Um, I am not the kind of writer my father was. And I think it took me a long time to sort of get to be okay with that. I think, you know, my, my father was very diligent throughout his entire writing life. You know, he he had um, a... a incredibly rare combination of um like in being extremely talented extremely good at hitting deadlines in fact he was usually ahead of most most deadlines by by several books wow like he he loved writing so much and loved it seemed every aspect of what he did loved the process of writing and was incredibly good at it and incredibly efficient at it. And that is, that is a very, very rare combination. And, and thankfully being exposed to more writers, I know that like that, that isn't what it's like, that isn't what it's normally like. Um, and it, it kind of took me a while. I am not that kind of a dedicated writer in the sense that I will go in and I will sit at my my desk and I will you know write for x amount of time and then um like modify my time in that way I write in in sort of bitty chunks until I sort of that I feel the mental stabilizer wheels coming up off my my creative bicycle and that the muse really hits me and then um, I tend to, to to kind of can go on for hours and hours, and that's usually at night, which wasn't how my father worked. My father worked um, at writing as if it was a nine nine to five job because he he trained as a journalist and an in house journalist, so he it was as far as he was concerned a, a kind of a nine to five job. Uh, whereas I am not, you know, I'm not that kind of writer, and I've 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 sort of struggled to to find what 
works for me and what methods work for me and the shape of the, the, my kind of writing day. Well, that, that's a running theme on this show, absolutely, is that finding that idea of finding what works for you and sticking with it, you know, making sure that you can carry on doing it. And in some instances, changing your life around, molding the rest of your life around what you come to learn are the best work practices for you. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that uh, you say you do those kind of binges quite often at night because, uh, not to be too indelicate, but you know, none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> and I used to do that when I was starting out, but as I've gotten older, I simply can't do that. As soon as the sun starts yeah. to go down, my energy levels just absolutely collapse. And so I am now, and for a long time, have been at my best immediately after waking. And that's when I get all my work done. I can occasionally get like that, but I tend to, my most prolific periods tend to be from like 8pm to 2pm, which is not very sociable really. Um, and I do try and um, modify things during the day, but I, I do, I find it a lot uh, harder to get into the rhythm of things. So I will often spend the morning answering emails or, or doing bits and pieces or other things that, that kind of need doing. Um, and, you know, and, and then sort of like almost um, sneak the writing and just starting doing a little bit. And just a little bit, I'll maybe watch that. And then I'll do a little bit more. And it's almost <laughs> like I'm tricking my brain every day into like, um, you know, just, just guess getting the bicycle um, running. Like I, I cannot, I, I rarely, unless I'm very like, if I am in a big script deadline, I am, I am find it easier to be, to, to, to get that bicycle up and running faster. If I've got little bits and pieces to do, then my, my day will be bits and pieces. -y. Um, and it will, uh, you know, it, the writing will be broken up by other things. Um, because I, I find it best when my brain is stimulated by different things. So, you know, I will, I will have, you know, a, a game, I'll play a game in the background or, you know, I will, I'll be listening to an audible book or I'll be watching some TV um, or I'll have some articles and I will swap between them. And it keeps my, um, my kind of brain fired up. And so when I, when I think, okay, time to get on the bicycle, like I am, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a better Stimulated. bicycle rider, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, okay, so this came up again with Jim as well. Do you think that's your journalistic background kicking in, that when you have a deadline, you can make yourself just sit down and grind it out? Yes. I, I do think that I, I am by and large pretty good at hitting deadlines. And I think that is the journalist training and, and having that healthy fear of deadlines. Um, so, like nine, eight, eight times out of 10, I'll hit a deadline. And, and like nine and a half times out of 10, if I haven't hit it, it's usually the, the day after or a couple of days after. It's not, um, I, I somehow the work gets done. I'm not entirely sure how, because it often ha happens in little bits, little bits, little bits, big bit, little bit, little bit, little <laughs> bit. Um, and, but, but it does, it, you know, it does get done and yeah, I, I was kind of respected a deadline and, um, that's been, yeah, that's just, a, you know, as you say, I think it is the, the journalist side of me that, you know, however I'm, uh, structuring my day, 
what needs to get done gets done. So when you are doing these other things, as you say, you know, listening to an audiobook, playing a game, whatever, um, presumably that's the time when you're the back of your mind, you know, your subconscious, whatever you want to call it, is working over the things that you're going to write. And you're not consciously thinking about it, but that's, you know, the, the thinking time that we all need when we're off doing chores or whatever. Yeah. Um, are you, do you sort of consciously take notes if something comes to you during those times? No, I don't. And I like, sometimes I think maybe I should, I'm not, I am, I'm not great at giving myself rules. <laughs> so if I think I will have a notebook um, and I will write down things when I think of them. Like there's something in me that the, the kind of inner rebel will go, no, that sounds like a rule. <laughs> and uh, like it will just kick back against it. If I am writing and like uh, if I'm in full writing mode and things occur to me, like I, I will always be writing notes about like I've got to go back and change this or I've got to solve this problem later. And so I'll have notes on the go when I'm in a big deadline. Um, and occasionally I will note things down, but I, I am the, the kind of narrative gumbo in my head, which is sort of, you know, it goes, you, I'm turn the heat down and it just keeps bubbling away while I'm playing age of mythology or, or watching orphan black, which both of which I'm doing at the moment. Um, not literally how to say, but <laughs> in the background, that's what I'm doing. Um, when I'm writing at the moment. Um, it just kind of keeps bubbling away. And I think sometimes, you know, it, it, your brain is solving problems in the background, um, almost like a screensaver. It's still, it's still kind of like, you know, it's still working on things. And so you can come back from like playing a game or going to the gym or something and you have the answer. And yeah, often I will kind of, if I get stuck, I will lie down, um, and usually I've got a very nice, um, comfortable window seat that I, um, I had designed specifically for being able to lie down whilst at work and with a cuddle a cat and just, um, kind of ruminate on a problem. And sometimes I will fall asleep before I, I solve the problem. And it's usually a, um, a race between whether sleep or inspiration hits, um, and both I think are good, uh, both are benefic beneficial. Um, but yeah, try, I, you know, I like, uh, I, I am working, uh, in one space now I have an office, but before that I would move around a bit more, usually in my own, in my own house rather than, uh, like in coffee shops and not, I've not been one for, for working, working coffee shops or anything like that. But now I have a dedicated writing space. Um, and so that has kind of like been designed, you know, it's a comfy chair and there's a comfy place to nap if I want. And I've always got a cat in there. Um, and so that, that kind of helps a lot as well, but I am a big believer in the sort of letting, letting the pot just simmer. Mm. Um, and, and often your brain can kind of solve solve things and I don't my my dad was never a big believer in writer's block because he, he felt that that was just like not always knowing what's going to go next it's just part of writing and you, you know you go out and you walk around the garden or, or you uh, you know play a game or something like that and then and then your brain will keep working and then then you'll come back back with things and so and maybe this is a journalist thing I 
don't really get writer's block. I'm just doing something else. Maybe my brain just finds something to do instead of admitting it's got writer's block. And, <laughs> you know, I, I just think it's part of the process. Whatever, the lies that I have, my brain has told myself <laughs> seem to work. I do like the idea of turning the heat down and letting it simmer. I like that simile. Yeah. That's good. Um, <laughs> I've got to say that window seat sounds, I mean, ironically, it sounds like the dream of everyone who wants to be a novelist. And yet, as we just said, you know, the reality of a novelist's working life is that they're not doing that at all, is that they're clamped to a desk and uh, industriously writing most of the day. Well, I, I used to, to sit, um, I like, I don't need to do it now, but when I was sort of, um, renting little apartments whilst my, my, my house was getting renovated. I used to work in bed a lot, which I used to call my, my winter office. And I still think that that is, oh, that's a, that's a luxury. It really is. Um, I don't tend to work on the window seat, but I do, I do go and sit there or lie down there for thoughtful com- contemplation. And there's usually a, a shouty cat on there as well. And yeah. I've got a blanket and I'll pull the blanket up and then the cat will come under the blanket. And it's all <laughs> like, I, I basically had this house designed around napping and reading. <laughs> like and there's cats. lots of napping and reading <laughs> place. Yeah, and cats. All right. So how does all this translate then to when you're doing screenwriting? Because the thing about games, as you know, those of us who work in the industry know, is that often you're directed. You may have spent some time coming up with the story, the plot, the narrative design with the uh with the game producers, but when the rubber hits the road, as it were you know, you are restricted in what you can write because it's not just you. Whereas when you come to do something more linear, like a screenplay or a teleplay, uh, you generally, at least in the early stages, have a lot more freedom. Uh, And so there is more chance of you not knowing what you're going to do next. So how do you apply this method of working to those forms? I mean, I guess because I do a lot of adaptation, that gives I already have a kind of vague roadmap. Even if with each draft um, you move further away from the source material, which mm. is usually the case with adaptation, that you know, as as you find your voice, uh, as as the book finds the the, the film's voice. Um, you you move, you get more confident with the story that you're telling, and you usually move further away from the source material. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why I I tend to do um, a lot more stuff where there's a bit of a roadmap. And I think going from game stuff into adaptation, like there were both ones where there would be some kind of roadmap. I think with adaptation, you probably got a little bit more space to color outside the lines because you're, you're adapting, you're changing Mm. it for another medium. And so you get to decide on how much change that there is, and you will still be working with other people. You will have, um, uh, producers and other executives kind of giving you feedback and having meetings and, you know, it's not dissimilar to games apart from they usually have a, a higher level of narrative literacy. They're usually more targeted in their feedback. Um, and it, in, in some sense it can be easier, but it's also development in, in film and TV is an, is the writer's space. It is for the writers to be writerly um, and, it it is really about you and the script, um, whereas you don't tend to get that luxury in games. <laughs> um, you don't tend to get that time when it's you're, like you are in charge of things. So, I mean, how do you uh, 
the nuts and bolts of screenwriting as opposed to game writing, how do you go about, say, revising? How many drafts do you do? It, it will usually tend, tend to be on a contract. I mean, I I like to tinker around with things for, uh, until they, like, pull it from my cold, dead hands, really. <laughs> I mean, I will, like, you have to, I just tinker and tinker and tinker. Um, usually I will have a contract that will specify the number of drafts. Sometimes that can change. Um, I've had one contract where um, because some of the, the executives involved were doing other things, um, I they, they sort of spun off the original draft of the contract to do extra drafts um, because they wanted to explore other things. Um, and so you, you do normally have uh, a number of drafts. Um, I tend to not I'm I'm not very good at doing the kind of vomit draft. So just getting everything down fast. I really wish I was good at that. I'm not. I, I'll I'll start worrying about things. So I I, I have a very um two steps forward, one step back approach to to writing. So I can't usually by the end I've kind of niggled and worried and gone back and fixed things so much along the way that by the time I've got to the end, like everything is almost very close to how I will submit it because I've done so much worrying along the way. I'm not someone who just throws down a draft and then goes back and picks it and kind of sorts it out then. Occasionally I might do that with a scene or two if I don't don't quite fully understand what I'm doing with it. Oh, with a whole scene or two, spoil yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but usually I like like to kind of worry um, and... uh, like give myself permission to like you know go go back and tinker with things on the fly rather than doing throwing it all down and then going back and and sorting it out later i am not good at that I, it's painful for me to do it would be painful for me to do that I, I have to go and fix things as soon as i think of them see i'm completely opposite and that's <laughs> that's that's the meat of, of the question yeah was like how do you revise before you turn a draft in but so that's amazing because I'm completely the other way around. I, yeah, I revise as I go. Yeah. I guess. yeah. I, if I tried to do that, I would never reach the end. I would just endlessly be revising the first 30 pages over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, that's how I do it. Um, it I'm like, it does, you know, you, end, you get to the end eventually and it's, it's a slower path, but I find it better for my sanity. Well, and I think the total amount of time is probably about the same. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, I think so. But um, that seemed, obviously, you know, I've had to learn how, how to adapt and um, I'm, I've kind of learned on the fly and now I've, I'm about four books in. I I feel I've kind of got a handle on it. So I sort of, um, I, I feel I'm kind of more confident about what I need to do and and how I go about things and, and just my general ability. Um, and so I think that helps a lot. And, you know, with every draft, um, as I say, you move further away from the source material and you just get to, to know the characters and hear their voices. And um, ideally it will, it will get stronger and stronger with each draft. But yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a worrier. I'm a niggler. I have to do everything. Otherwise, yeah, I just uh, w- would worry me in the back of the head. I can't move forward until I've like mended everything behind me. <laughs> yeah, no, as I say, I'm completely the opposite. I I envy you in some ways. I wish I could do that. <laughs> well, but, I mean, uh, like I I kind yeah, of as I say, I, I I'd never actually finish anything. Yeah, I envy the vomit draft. I wish I was faster at doing that, and and um, yeah, and maybe this is 
uh, I, I tend to kind of, I don't, don't tend to do a lot of original stuff myself. And, and part of that is fear. Um, part of that is, and, and fear that's born of like wanting a commission for something, sure. like wanting someone to want me to do something, feeling that love of someone believing in you and giving you something to do. Um, that, that I, is a big thing for me and I, it probably comes from my, my journalistic days as well. So I, I kind of, um, there's part of me, despite my father, well, I guess my father had contracts for things. So he had people wanting him to do something, but, um, I, yeah, I'm not very good at just, uh, writing, um, with no particular destination in mind. And I, I, I like, I, I'm good at, at like the, writing with a destination, knowing the stops along the way. I'm not so good at freeforming. I can, I can do it. And I have done, um, short stories and things like that, but they, but they were usually around a specific theme or something. So I had something to jump off. Right. So there was still something there for you to go, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. Now I just need to figure out how to do it. Yeah. A little bit of an anchor there. So I, I've tended to kind of work, um, with, parameters whether that came from things like gameplay or level design or it came from i'm adapting a certain book um and i you know i have done a lot of original stuff within that so with with one of the tv projects i worked on that i did worked up um a season bible and a pilot script was based around um the characters from uh, a thousand and one nights and the, the kind of a, a tales of the Arabian nights. Um, but it was those characters 20 years later. And it was like, what, what had happened to them in the meantime, like how, how taking the, the conceit that all the characters, the stories that had happened to them were real. And that all these characters that now lived in this particular city, you lived in and around this particularly, the city in ancient Persia. And, it sort of explored how how their fortunes had gone, um, you know, whether they were still like holding on holding on to their fame, or had they rejected it? Had they you know, rejected the, the treasures that they'd found? Um, how are they living their lives now? And um, kind of bringing them all together again for an adventure. It was a sort of trying to create a Arabian Avengers was, was what my producer wanted. And that was largely me coming up with a lot of original stuff, but using characters and the tail end of some of, of stories. Referring back to the tales. Yeah. yeah. And I liked doing that. And then what happened? Like what happened <laughs> after the the end and the credits rolled? And, and I, I love doing that sort of exploratory writing, taking something we know and then, then kind of, moving it forward um and there's been particularly in tv i think i've done a lot more um original creative work in tv um even if it's uh, like it's been not quite adaptation but it's um, the tv work has been using um characters or, or historical figures that, that people know um with, with film it's been more uh, it's been kind of book to screen adaptations um and yeah, I've done I've done a little bit of original work, but you thankfully, and I'm you know, lucky enough. I usually have enough work on the go that I don't don't really get the time and n- don't necessarily have the inclination to just do stuff on my own. I am trying to move to that and to get into the right mindset for that, but um, yeah, I, I'm still kind of addicted to 
that 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 little love bomb of getting a <laughs> a commission and you know getting a deadline and that that kind of thing um so yeah <laughs> and the other thing is that it does i mean this inclination also makes you very very suitable for working in those collaborative environments like games and like film and like tv so you know don't knock it no it, it has kind of worked for me and um no i think i've been kind of lucky that I, I can do things in that way and that, that's been sort of translated quite well across different mediums. I think I'm, I always knew I never really wanted to focus on one thing. Like I always wanted to have the, the kind of career that say Neil Gaiman or, or, or Jane Goldman has had where they've like, even if they've worked like Jane has obviously mainly worked in film, but she's done a lot of different genres in film. She's adapted comics, she's adapted horror. Um, and obviously Neil has done kind of books, he's done TV, he's done films, um, he's done comics. Like I, I really like that, you know, trying out different things. I think that really strengthens you, or at least it strengthens me as a storyteller. No, no I mean, being somebody who does that same thing myself, I yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> and did you, where did you start? Me, I started in, well, I mean, I started as a kid writing short stories. Professionally, mm. I started in uh, role-playing games journalism, actually. Oh, right. That was my first published work. Uh, role-playing games journalism. Mm. So just like reviewing role-playing games? Well, I didn't do the reviews. No, or? what I did, used to do is I wrote articles, basically advice on how to run better games for Arcane magazine uh, for several ah. issues. And I'd do like a, a feature roundup of how of say cyberpunk games and what they are and how you can run a good one and what the best systems are and all that sort of thing. So, so you were a GM as well on the side? Oh yeah. 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 I spent most of my teenage years as the GM of many, many role-playing games with my friends. I mean, literally at one point we counted and we were playing 30 different campaigns once technically oh, and I was running. Yeah. Like I, half of them. I really envy that. Yeah. <laughs> I envy that because like my, like, my friends were not into that kind of thing. I don't think I hung around with the right kind of geeks. And I was, I was a, a little bit, <clears throat> I wouldn't say completely loner, but I was on the edges of, of kind of groups and things. And I don't know if that was going on, but it wasn't going on around me. And I don't think dad, I don't think dad did much of that or I don't remember. I remember some multi-sided dice that he had. Um, so he may have it's done that at conventions <laughs> and things, but I don't remember him, but he got into computers and and, and um, gaming quite early. So uh, I think he was kind of advanced on, on tradition on, on games rather than um, kind of tabletop, the yeah. tabletop um, pen and paper games um so yeah i mean i'm sure he did a bit of that but he, he that was never something that was kind of passed on to me he it was the you know it was the the computer stuff that he passed on to me and that, that's worked out quite well i was gonna say yeah you've you done okay <laughs> from it um i was gonna say that 1001 nights idea by the way sounds great i'd love to see that yeah it, it is sort of it's languishing in that limbo oh. of like I, i've written a pilot script and it actually it's it's a, it, it's a good pilot uh, script as a sort of spec script to stand out uh, to, to send out and say okay this is what I can do in an hour uh, but it's very high it's quite high concept and quite expensive so ah. I think that's why <laughs> you know it, it's a bit like Arabian Game of Thrones um, and yeah and that came about through um, I, I was 
commissioned many years ago to do a a page one rewrite a rewrite of an Aladdin script that was in in development by a a UK studio and a and a US studio and the studios fell out and it never went anywhere but I I um kept in contact with the uh, Ali Jafar, who was the name of uh, it was the name of the producer at the the UK studio, and he was always interested in in kind of doing something more. And like I tinkered around with it in the background and um, waited for Ali to to land somewhere where he could actually pay me to to develop it uh, to develop it more. And it it actually did went on from being an Aladdin thing. So although Aladdin was a character in it. Yo, know, Ali. Ali had a um, kind of vision of wanting to do Arabian Adventures and, and bringing the, the different characters together. And I kind of wanted to do um, something kind of more TV based. So it kind of evolved over the years. Um, and then Ali uh, went to O3 Productions in Dubai, who are the, the Arabic world's biggest sort of content creators. And I did I did that for them. Um, but it's sort of just. Uh, I think there's a lot of Arabian night stuff around and it's very like it's mm. maybe one day like it was it was really fun to do and I really enjoyed the the creative exercise of of working with characters like um Shahrazad and, uh, and uh, Ali Baba and um uh Sinbad and you know and looking at all reading all the Arabian nights tales and kind of finding you know, minor characters and things like that to explore. Finding the bits you can pull out. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I had, I had Ali Baba and Morjana as kind of like underworld PIs who had, and Ali had rejected his, his fortune because it had brought him nothing but misery in the end. And uh, so he had to like get a job and, and Morjana <laughs> was the, was the muscle and he was kind of the, the brains and Scheherazade was a kind of, um, a faded queen and, and it had been 20 years since she'd been able to ally the king's madness with her tales. And in that, in that time, she's sort of been pushed to the sidelines. Uh, her children have been taken, uh, taken away from her in one way or another. And, and she's on sort of the, the brink of suicide at the start of the game. And it, it also at the game, see, I'm thinking, still thinking about the, <laughs> the start of the, the show. And, um, uh, yeah, and and she she starts to get get visions, and it, it sort of turns out that she is tapping a a, and a power has awoken, um, and so it, it turned out that when she told those tales to the king in the Thousand and One Night, she wasn't just telling stories; she was weaving a spell, and that spell unknowingly to her linked her to all the characters that she was telling the tales about and now now the city um is is under threat that kind of spell is starting to um bubble up again and she's starting to get visions from the characters that that really exist in that city and and it's a sort of about learning what this means and, and bringing the, the the kind of characters together um and that oh, it's great fun to do it's great fun it's a, it's yeah i'm hoping it will get go there one day it's it's a good it's a good spec script yeah um really does sound like fun uh, yeah it, it has it's called a thousand and two the um, oh very good yeah <laughs> the working title at the moment um funnily enough i wrote a spec script based uh a, it was uh the idea was that it was English rebels after the Norman invasion, and it was called 1067. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's start to bring this to a close then. Uh, final few questions. What parts, when you come to 
right when you you finished with your your pottering about as it were and you sit down what parts do you really enjoy what do you look forward to writing the most I don't know whether I look forward in advance to writing something like I I'm now just at, like literally this morning um I got the um metaphorical bottle of champagne uh, smashed over my prow um to to be told yes you can move on to script <laughs> and I definitely been I wasn't necessarily uh working like knowing which bits I was really looking forward to writing, but I was just looking forward to writing. I, you know, it, I've been working on the outline for ages and ages, and I just wanted to write it um, and get and get into script. And um, it, you know, I, I, you know, I've done all the kind of theory, and I have a very very solid outline. And now I just wanted to kind of cut loose and 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 write the script. Um, and so that's what I will be doing next week, and I'm very much looking forward to that. And. Um, so I don't think I necessarily look forward to, I don't know what I look forward to, to until I'm in it. Uh, and like the stabilizer, was the wheels of the, bar, uh, the bicycle are off and, and it's flying. Uh, I'd never know in advance what that's going to be. Um, and I do like writing uh, action um, that I, I that I've always had a lot of fun with. I like um, being able to weave humour into things. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I never really know in advance what I'm, I'm going to enjoy the most until I'm kind of in, in the depths of it, I think. All right. Well, I mean, the, so the second question, by contrast, is what parts do you dread coming to write? But it sounds like that's maybe the same answer. Killing characters? Uh, oh. like I can often get quite upset about killing, oh, like e even if they've like died in the book, it can be quite, it can kind of be quite emotional and also sort of taking, uh, characters through traumatic things. Sometimes like I have to go and pour myself a big drink. So it's not like I don't look forward to it, but just, I get a most so emotionally invested in it that it, it kind of starts to scar me a little bit and I have to like, you know, go and have a break or a small cry somewhere. That is really hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I know writers who don't have this issue, but I have a similar issue where like, I really find it difficult and a little uncomfortable to write those really kind of, you know, the bits where my characters are having a really hard time, mm. even though I know they're essential to the story, they are, I find them quite difficult to write. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, emotion. I mean, the words come, but it's, it's emotionally more demanding, I think. Yeah. All right. So the final question then, what is something that you have read, watched, or, or even played recently where the writing itself really impressed you and why? There's a few things actually. Um, I, I never really in the past, um, sort of the genre I was particularly into, but the kind of suburban, shiny noir drama series like A Dead to Me, uh, like Little Fires Everywhere. Um, I've enjoyed both of those a lot um, uh, and much more than I thought I would and I thought the writing is superb. I got very into Shit's Creek and um, – uh, Shit's Creek has wonderful writing. Um, like it, it, it always has like a, a good level of writing. And there's been more than a few times where I've just gone, that was a perfect scene. That was perfectly executed. Um, and 
and, you know, I love, I love having a TV series that has the half an hour format. Like it's so nice. Like you, there's usually things that are, you know, meaty and an hour long and you have to do, do a, a big in, time investment in, in them. Um, but it's, it's really nice having that half an hour series. And it is, it is lovely to see a, a father and a, a father and son created show with a father and son playing a father and son. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, so I enjoy Shit's Creek a lot. I'm going back to, to watching Orphan Black, which is incredibly well written. Um, yeah, I mean, TV. TV is, uh, that's where I tend to be most impressed by, by the quality of the writing. And there's so much good stuff around. You know, I've I've been lucky enough through this these difficult times to have a few few projects on the go. Not not like full uh, massive deadlines, although I did uh, have a deadline um, at the start of iso- uh, of, of the, the pandemic and the isola- uh, isolation period, where I was working on a script which was partly about a killer virus, oh. and so that was kind <laughs> of difficult to finish that draft. I know a few people have been through through that sort of thing. Yeah, the last few yeah, months. and it was it was purely coincidence uh, you know i've been working on on um the, the script for 18 months so it just so happened that the, the draft hit the same time that the pandemic did um so that was difficult but since then i've had it's been a lot it's been there's built-in stuff going on but not uh not as heavy going so i've been watching um more tv and i think that tends to be my my primary source of of kind of narrative nourishment so, Rihanna, where can people find you online? I have a, a website, RihannaPratchett.com, which is really, really out of date. So I'm in the process of um, updating that at the moment. I mean, the, the contact details are still uh, accurate there, but it's, it's it's about five years out of date. It's terrible. Uh, but I like to think it's because I've worked, been working so hard yes. on things. I haven't <laughs> had time to update my website. But that's a kind of ongoing thing. Uh, Twitter, at RihPratchett, um, is, that's probably the main main place that you can find me all right and what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they're not familiar with your work oh gosh um well i guess in games um uh, tomb raider reboot in 2013 um and rise of the tomb raider 2015 are good ones um if you like kind of dark comedy games the overlord series are really fun um heavenly sword is a big kind of bonkers wushu influence sword and sorcery game mirror's edge is a kind of near near future parkour running game um so they're they're kind of all, all very different um uh, many of those i mentioned have have quite um central female protagonists which is one of the areas i specialize in um so th- those would be the games i recommend i am i have um uh, written my first fighting fantasy novel, um, oh, fantastic. which is coming out. That's in... the other thing I used to do when I was a teenager. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, well, it's it's coming out in, in October. Um, uh, so the, the book is called Crystal of Storms. So yes, I, I've written a fighting fantasy novel, and I'm the first woman to have, to have written one. Um, my God, really? Kind of strange. Yeah, wow. yeah. And even when I've written it, there'll still be more men called Steve Jackson that have written for fighting yes. fantasy than women, <laughs> uh, being like two two, two Steve Jackson. So that that has been quite. That's been a lot of fun and, and quite a. And it was one of those 
huh, that seems like an interesting um, challenge and I don't think I can do it. Or I think or maybe I can do it. And uh, like, it, it scares me a bit. And so that's what I'm going to do. So I, I was um, very lucky that, that Ian Livingstone approached me and Ian and I had done a little bit of work together during um, uh, the Tomb Raider reboot in 2013. I'm also very aware of, of Ian through his, his great work in the industry. And he he approached me to do that, and that's my I guess my first novel. It was it's a yeah, sort of stealth novel because <laughs> it's like half a game, and so it doesn't really kind of feel like a novel. So I can kind of kid myself like it's not I, like I'm writing novels now. I'm not a novelist now. It's sort of like half novel, half game. Therefore, I'm not like it's not novel. It's not novel. Man, I am now. I'm proper <laughs> jealous because when I was a kid, seriously, I used to write my own you know little fighting fantasy adventures for my friends to play and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to that. I shall definitely be checking that out. Good, good. Let me know what you think. It's probably not maybe as dark as some of the ones, but it, it's, um, I think there's, I, there's, there's a lot of kind of colour and charm and a little bit of madness in there. So Fantastic. I, 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 I'm, I'm a bit terrified about it, but um, yeah, it was, it was good fun to do. Hell of a legacy, yeah. All right, Brianna, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, can take part in Q&A episodes and more. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. Um, and now I think I've rambled on and I've forgotten the question and whether I've answered it or not, but I probably haven't. <laughs> so okay. remind me of it again. <laughs> <laughs>